Hey, welcome to episode 71 of Bo No Stuff. I am excited for you guys to take a listen to this one with Dr. Lance Mabry, someone I connected with on LinkedIn in the physical therapy profession. He is an advocate and get ready for this alliteration. He is a professor pushing primary care for physios. I like that. And uh, I kind of did come up with that myself. I don't know if he's going to like it, but uh, <laughs> we had a great chat. Um, what else? It's December as I am publishing this. So I just had my first ever snowboard lesson my booty is still sore um debating between skiing and snowboarding i know first world problems um if you guys have any thoughts on that chime in starting my other podcast demand better with my buddy david corona back in new york city um we are excited to to push that one forward as well so uh please support share like let us know what else you want to hear here uh, on the Bono stuff, where I get to learn more stuff, or Demand Better. We've published three episodes so far, Demanding Better from your personal trainer, Demand Better from your physical therapist, and Demand Better from your nutritionist. Uh, we've had a lot of fun with that. I'm excited to keep that growing. So your support means everything, guys. Leave a rating, review. Again, like, share, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. And uh, let's get into it with Dr. Lance Mabry. Hi, there we are. We are live here. Episode 31, oh, 71, 71, uh, with Dr. Lance, is it Mabry or Matt? I heard it pronounced a little differently. Uh, Mabry, yes. Mabry, yeah, that's what I thought. And uh, we have his request here, Lifer, Hate Me, Love Me, in the background. Uh, hopefully we don't get copywritten with that in the background. Um, and so, A, I'd like to thank you here for your service. It was just Veterans Day. Uh, we don't want to just do that one day a year. We want to always applaud our um, servicemen and women all year round. So thank you again for that. Um, you know, freedom, and I'll say the cliche thing, freedom is not free. Um, so thank you again for your service to our military, um, and our country. And then, uh, I'll let you go a little bit quickly into, if you wanted to, um, introduce yourself, uh, cause you have a lot of, a lot of credentials behind your name and, uh, I'd love to, to allow you to do that. We have, we'll have it in the, the show notes, but in your own words, 30 seconds, elevator pitch, go. Oh, uh, so uh, Lance Mabry, my, my background is in orthopedics. Uh, I do have a little bit of background in acute care, and uh, I've also uh, worked in a couple of primary care settings and emergency room settings, um, prior Air Force physical therapist, uh, board certified orthopedic uh, specialist, uh, FAMP trained. Uh, I'm currently an assistant professor at High Point University, and my uh, research focus is on the uh, clinical application of diagnostic imaging in physical therapy practice. Um, I'm also teaching diagnostic imaging, uh, continuing education with Redefine Health Education. Phenomenal. That was that was incredible. Thirty seconds. Um, I, and and again, you know, we love to hear the whole story. But I, I listened to a few of the podcasts, and I'll definitely direct folks to those other episodes you did um, regarding your, your, you know, your whole story. But I wanted to, again, be respectful of your time, be respectful of the listener's time and jump more into these meat and potatoes of these issues. Cause we got some, some powerful stuff that we, we were talking about. And I'll just give the quick intro of uh, where we connected on LinkedIn. Uh, there was a post about imaging and, and I think it was about how there was a lack of correlation between the imaging and then clinical findings. And it was a little bit of, of, of maybe poo pooing on the imaging. And, uh, you know, you jumped in there and kind of said, this is, this is a little bit of, of fear mongering. And, and like, you know, I, there's a lot of nuance in between these catchy posts and then the reality and then what you're trying to do, which is phenomenal. Um, and I want to bring attention to that around trying to get more states to, uh, welcome and, and push the concept that physical therapists can, 
uh, and should be able to in our on our kind of struggling healthcare field, uh, which is where again I've talked about these concepts a lot in my episodes. Uh, fill in those gaps, not only fill in the gaps, but also provide and and we are the best equipped profession, and and we have the best equipped kind uh, of kind of uh, study behind us around ordering imaging, saving money in the long run, whether it's MRIs. Um, you know, uh, MRIs, x-rays, ra- just radiographs in general, however we want to refer to it. And I will add in real quick, uh, as my, I see my wife is leaving to go take our dog for a walk, threw me off a little bit. Um, I want to add in uh, the, the fact that uh, you're coming from a military background where in the military, for those not familiar, physical therapists do have the ability to order medication, specific, more, a little limited, right? If you correct me, it's more NSAIDs and, and things like that but also uh, are kind of that first line of defense uh, where it comes to ordering imaging, where the general population, uh, us civilians, do not have that power in most states. And again, it is definitely not pushed that much. So again, I've been in practice uh, since 2008 as, as a DPT, doctor of physical therapy. My education did include imaging, medications, all that good stuff, pharmacology. And uh, it's just something that I, in New York State, California, and now in Colorado, Colorado is the first place where I actually have the power to do these things. So I'm just kind of also uh, learning and, and figuring out where I can do that. So again, I'll, I'll throw it over to you. And, and uh, if anything I said in there was any at wrong at all, uh, please feel free to correct me. But I love uh, would love to hear. Uh, and again, I've heard you talk about it on a few other podcasts and, and, and on LinkedIn. So I'd love for you to bring to my listeners here uh, what we should know. Our physical therapists should we be able to order imaging? Uh, does it save money? Uh, you know, th- these kind of things. It sounds like, you're, you know, obviously we know where you're kind of at, but I'd love to hear your, your take on it. Yeah. So, um, so yes, uh, uh, you know, the, the bottom line up front, um, when it comes to musculoskeletal conditions, physical therapists are the most qualified practitioners out there in regards to ordering diagnostic imaging. And, and we can look at, uh, you know, you could possibly say uh, orthopedic surgeons uh, may be more qualified, but but unless they're going to be taking uh, all non-surgical orthopedic conditions, which I, I suspect they don't want to do, uh, we are the best per- the best trained profession to uh, to take that on, and and that's been demonstrated over and over and over again in the the medical literature, um, both from a an appropriateness standpoint, who's following the evidence uh, in regards to imaging uh, the most. Uh, when they order imaging or refer for imaging, and and it's also been demonstrated as far as uh, as accuracy. So, um, I think the uh, you you mentioned um, uh, you mentioned early on uh, about the the correlation with imaging, and 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 sadly, I, I think the the pendulum has swung uh, so far against imaging uh, that it, it that it really needs to swing back a little bit. So, uh, you know, the the things that we're hearing is you know the clinical the you know there's no clinical correlation with imaging. Uh, you know what is found in the clinic doesn't line up with what's found on the imaging. And, can, and, can I can I can I just yeah. throw my my quick thing in there in terms sure. of so I'm coming from uh, what, what I what I say a lot uh, in that regard, and I'd love to again uh, you know put that into this context is. And I think it was one or two studies that unfortunately do get amplified and and kind of reverberated because of their their, uh, simplicity, maybe, or their potency. But the the big study that gets quoted a lot that I've heard for a long time since being a student, even back, and the study must have come out around 2005 or so, um, was that you take 100 people on the street, non-symptomatic, 
you do MRIs of their backs, their low backs, uh, lumbar spines, and 72 of them are going to present with things that if you take it to a surgeon, orthopedic surgeon, spinal surgeon, they're going to want to operate on it because the imaging just looks scary. Um, and so, but these are asymptomatic people who have no pain. And so that's kind of the, 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 the study or if that adds a context. So yeah, is, is it new research that sh says like, you know, 72% is a little whatever or, or yeah, I'd love to put that into context to some extent. Sure. I mean, obviously it depends on, on body region, right? So, um, uh, so it depends on body region and, and there are a million of these studies out there, um, that look at, uh, you know, asymptomatic patients, um, which, you know, if, if there's any clinician out there that is overwhelmed at their clinic with asymptomatic patients, please let me know. Um, <laughs> but I, I suspect that none of us are evaluating asymptomatic pa patients on, on a regular basis. So, um, so why there is so much time and energy and research dollars and grant and grants and everything else spent on this, I, I just, I can't understand this. Um, and when you look at studies that actually look at people that actually have symptoms, um, those studies have, have greater value, but they're not cited as much. So there's, there's actually a really interesting article. So if, if we want to talk about the asymptomatic research, there was a, an article uh, by Brinjiki et al. And it was in uh, 2015. It was in, uh, oh goodness, uh, neurology or, or something along those lines. Um, I forget the exact journal. Um, but Brinjiki et al. came out with two articles. They came out in the exact same journal within this, in the exact same year, within a couple months of each other, and they had opposing viewpoints. So in their first article, they did a systematic review looking at uh, asymptomatic patients. And they looked at it with uh, low back pain and asymptomatic patients um, or asymptomatics. Um, they then did a second systematic review. And this time they only included case controls where they would compare an age matched symptomatic patient. So somebody that's 23 year olds, 23 with back pain, and they compared it with those that were 23 year old with, without back pain. Um, that systematic review, you know, compared both. So essentially what, what they found was in the asymptomatics, they found that sure enough, there are a lot of findings on diagnostic imaging, right? And that's what we all hear over and over again is, as uh, in the research. But their study where they actually compared symptomatics to asymptomatics, what they found was, was that symptomatics had substantially more imaging findings in almost every single capacity. Um, and that doesn't get talked about as much. The interesting thing between these two is one is clearly a better study. One, you're only looking at asymptomatics. You're not even looking at those that have symptoms. The other one, they're doing this case control. As far as quality of research, those that are comparing a control group, meaning the asymptomatics, to an experimental group, meaning the, the symptomatics, clearly a better study design. But yet the one that that is only on asymptomatics has been cited like four times more than the one that compares it to the symptomatics. Now, wh why is that? Why is the one, why is the lower quality study the one that gets cited more? And why is that the one that gets shared more on Twitter? And why is that the one that gets shared more? it's because of that inherent bias. There's this, in, this huge inherent bias in the, in the medical system against imaging. Um, and imaging is just a tool. And that's, that's why this, this other one is, is being cited less often. So we need to, we need to get off that narrative and understand that imaging is a helpful, is a helpful tool when it's used appropriately. Now, when it's used inappropriately, it's not helpful. 
but that's not the image's fault. That's the clinician's fault. And frankly, <laughs> as physical therapists, that strengthens our arguments. The, the clinicians that are out there that are using imaging now, primarily primary care providers, they don't know how to use it. It's not their fault, right? They, they've gotten very little musculoskeletal training. In fact, the, the research that's out there, um, 30% of physicians report that they've gotten no musculoskeletal training at all in their education. None. Um, I, I know a program that does eight total hours for the entire body on musculoskeletal, on musculoskeletal conditions in, in, uh, primary care, uh, uh, physician school. So, um, so they don't get this training. They don't know how to use it. So they're just guessing. And there was a, a study by Jenkins et al in spine journal a couple years, a uh, couple years back. Um, and they found that primary care providers, uh, are ordering extraneous imaging, extra imaging in about 60 some odd percent of cases, right? And we hear about that a lot. But the second finding in the Jenkins et al. study was that um, only like one in five patients with red flag findings that needed imaging actually got the imaging they needed. Mm. So to say that imaging is overutilized, that's just one piece of the pie. Right. It's actually overutilized in some and it's underutilized in those that need it. So it's kind of an arbitrary dartboard. It, whether or not a patient gets, it in, it gets the imaging they need or don't need um, is, is completely arbitrary. And that's why we need to shift that responsibility from the PCPs to the physical therapists so we can take that on and, and order it the way it's supposed to be done. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for putting that into context. And I'll add another similar concept there that I've been uh, exploring a little bit on my other podcast, the Demand Better podcast. Uh, one is that physicians, primary care physicians, general practitioners uh, tend to be one of the top places that folks go for nutritional advice. And, you know, you mentioned the statistics kind of around uh, musculoskeletal care, and most of those physicians get even less you know, the, the, the kind of things that get thrown out is you get maybe a 30 minute lecture in your entire schooling on, uh, you know, eat less, exercise more. That's it. And that's kind of the advice that, that gets put out there. And at the end of the day, too, we understand, I think we have to acknowledge and, and, and appreciate that uh, for most folks, the general practitioner in that kind of five to seven minute window. I heard you talking about that on one of the other podcasts that they get five to seven minutes with the patient. Uh, you know, they're trying to get in there, make sure that person's alive. Uh, not, you know, nothing, nothing over, over serious is happening. That's why it's easy to, to order the images. And in terms of the system, and, and I'd I don't know if you have a statistic for us uh, around this, I'll let you think about it as I, as I finish this kind of question is uh, every system is, is a book club I did recently from a book called Upstream. And the quote from there, that was the big takeaway. I don't know if you read that book, but uh, is every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. So mm -hmm. we, we do have a healthcare system that we could say is not, does not rank phenomenally in, in all of the outcomes that we get. Um, and so I don't know if you have um, off the top of your head or, or if you, you know, you seem like you might uh, of imaging, like you're saying that uh, let's take it from that one aspect of it. Is there a side of it where we could say, again, the over imaging is happening because again, you're in these, the, the system that says, if I don't do an image and I miss something, I'm going to get sued. So we're just going to send them for an MRI and x-ray. It's easier for me to do that. So are there statistics of how much of that is not truly necessary when you know, going back, I'd be surprised if there was a very accurate statistic around that, but I don't know if you have one off the top of your head. Yeah. So the, so the Jenkins et al. study, the one I just mentioned, um, that's probably the, the best source of that. Um, the way they did their, the way they did the results, it's, it's a little bit challenging to, to, to kind of pull numbers out of it, just the way they reported them. I, I, I've read the, the article a few times. Um, but I, but I, as I understand the, the article, 
um, 66% of ish somewhere around there of imaging that was ordered in these studies uh, was considered to be inappropriate. Um, so yeah. that means that, you know, the primary care providers were appropriately ordering imaging in about 34% wow. of cases. Um, but then again, when patients need imaging, um, the majority of those patients weren't getting uh, the imaging they, they needed. So it was simultaneously uh, overutilized and underutilized. So we're, we're only getting half of the story. When we, mm. when we hear these threads, right, when you're, when you're hearing the bias against imaging, all we hear is that imaging is overutilized. Well, why are we only hearing that? Why aren't we hearing that it's underutilized in patients that need it? And that that is that's inherent because of the bias we have. So it's mm -hmm. it's it's going both ways. So so instead of saying imaging is overutilized, we need to change that, and we need to say imaging is being wrongly or improperly utilized, both over and underutilized. Mm -hmm. um, and because of that, we need to shift that responsibility from the primary care providers, who again no fault of their own, they don't get a lot of training in musculoskeletal care. Um, they have very little time with the patient, so five to seven minutes with the patient. Um, a lot of times those patients, you know, if they're coming in for knee pain and the patient right before them has, you know, you know, some unusual chest pain or something else, uh, they're going to spend a little bit more time with that patient with chest pain, a little bit less time with that patient with knee pain. So that, that five to seven minutes is probably an average, but for musculoskeletal, it might be a little bit less, um, when it comes to that. So, so there's a lot of things working against the primary care providers, uh, in that regard. And, and as physical therapists, we are, uh, we tend to be blessed with time. We we tend to have more time with our patients. And with that, we tend to be able to allow, that allows us to have a little bit of a better subjective history. It allows us to have a little bit of a better objective findings, a little bit better exam overall um, that can help guide our, our imaging results. And then the other thing too, is I can, I can treat that patient and see how they respond. And then that can help guide my decisions on, you know, image is imaging necessary or, or is it not necessary? Or can we wait for now? And, and, um, these are not things that um, most primary care providers have the the ability that they, they, they can't afford these kind of things um, as far as their time is concerned. So I think physical therapists are uniquely positioned to to capitalize this and, and do what's best for the patient. Um, there was also an interesting study um, that just came out and I, I forget the author. So uh, forgive me, I can I can find this for you after uh, afterwards. But um, they looked at when physical therapists are the ones that order the imaging, um, what does that do uh, in regards to both healthcare costs and um, costs for the patient? And the, the response was when physical therapists order imaging, the costs for the patient drop in regards to co-pays and the cost to the healthcare system drops by thousands of dollars, I think it was, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, uh, as well. So I, I think that was a, it was a fascinating study because it looked both from a healthcare utilization standpoint, but also how much money is coming out of that patient's pocket? Because copays are, they can be problematic, especially for those on the, you know, the lower spectrum of income. Yeah. Yeah. That's a huge statistic that gets thrown around. And, and again, so that takes us directly kind of to direct access, the concept of direct access. And it's something I definitely wanted to, to hone in on. Again, I've, I've heard you talk about a little bit. It ties in, I think, to a lot of the uh, things you seem to be very passionate about and doing a lot of work in, in, in terms of legislative, as well as uh, just uh, pushing publicly in, in, in what I've seen you uh, posting about. So direct access, or again, I like that it's a, it's a little bit of a nebulous term. And I heard you say, you know, maybe we should call it first contact or, you know, the APTA, the American Physical Therapy Association, uh, they tried this little campaign called Get PT First. But again, it doesn't really 
I think connect the messaging and, and I have to, you know, call out our profession here. Uh, we're awful at messaging. Um, yeah. <laughs> and part of it is we have a lot of different things going on. I think it's not the easiest thing to push down again. There's a lot of nuance. I think that's, that's where we're getting into, you know, these long term, long form conversations. So there's a lot of nuance to imaging to all these things, but let's bring it back to direct access or again, first contact. Um, and, just for, again, those listening, if you're not familiar, that basically means, and, and all 50 states here in, in the U.S. have some form of it. They all have slight restrictions. Some have complete uh, unrestricted direct access, meaning you can see the physical therapist uh, and it's, and it's the, up to the physical therapist as the primary care uh, clinician, which is another term I, I know uh, you, you, you have some thoughts about. <laughs> and uh, in terms of that, um, versus some states where there's restrictions. Uh, when New York passed it, when I was a student there, uh, the they agreed to do 30 days uh, or whatever it was, six visits. And then after 30 days, if there was no progress or, or we still had issues, you'd have to refer back to uh, that person's uh, physician. So direct access, first contact. Again, this concept, uh, I'd love, you know, to, to I think we can, we should be able to shout it out. I'd love to include it in every single episode, you know, post about at least twice a week on my social medias and get it out to as many people as we can that if you sprain your ankle right now today, and I hope you don't out there listening, knock on wood. Um, if you're out there walking, don't trip, um, as you're listening to this. But, uh, if you do that, you can go directly to see Dr. Lance in his clinic. Um, and he should be able to be that now the person who says I can assess this. I'm the expert. Uh, this needs to get escalated and I want to send you out for radiographs based on, let's say the Ottawa ankle rules, just, just as a simple kind of thing. I don't know. And if you sure. have thoughts on that, uh, just for the listener, if they're not familiar, we can go a little deeper in that, but, and, and then he's going to say, cool, let's see how we do over this next week, two weeks. I've seen, you know, hundreds of these. Uh, and again, it's going to save the entire system and especially the patient, um, a lot of time, money, energy, and, and headaches rather than having to go to your general practitioner then get a script to go see your physical therapist and also get another script to go get an MRI and get another script to go do an x-ray. And, and again, this, this convoluted system, which again is there for a reason, but I'll, I'll throw it back to you of, yeah, like what, what specifically about direct access should the public know? Um, and, and, you know, if you want to just go off on the direct access concept, I'd love to, to get all, all your thoughts here. Yeah. So, um, so you mentioned, uh, you mentioned the, the messaging around, uh, primary care PT, right? So, mm -hmm. um, that's, that's one of the buzzwords right now is, is primary care PT. I know we, uh, at High Point University, I teach in the, the primary care, uh, curriculum. Mm. Uh, we also have uh, a couple of legislative initiatives going on through the APTA, uh, to get physical therapists identified as primary care providers, uh, as opposed to, uh, ancillary care, um, uh, the, you know, uh, Bill Boisenault wrote the, you know, primary care, uh, physical therapy book, uh, textbook years ago. Um, you know, Katie Obright is a CEO of Redefine Health. She's actually, uh, kind of focusing on, uh, continuing education in the, in the primary care space. So, um, you know, when I was a, when I was a military physical therapist, I, I really, I understood what primary care PT meant, or, or I understood what it meant in, in relation to, uh, the military. And, and when I got out of the military, um, I realized, oh, wow, there's, there's a lot of different definitions about what primary care PT is. And some people use, you know, some people use direct access and use that interchangeably with primary care. And some people use, you know, first contact and, and, you know, when you start digging in the research, um, sometimes it's called expanded scope, or sometimes it's called phys physician extender, um, sometimes it's called advanced practice. There's, 
there's a lot of these different definitions. And, and if I talk to five different people, they'll, they'll all have five different definitions of, of what primary care is. And, and it really took me the last couple of years of, of working on the civilian side to really understand where the confusion is and where the messaging is. Um, and even like, if, if you go, if you go talk to physicians and, and, or prime or PAs or things like that, and you let them know, Hey, you know, PTs are looking to get identified as primary care providers. Um, their response is, Oh, you're going to start, you're going to start managing diabetic medications. So, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of confusion behind what is, what does this mean? Right? No, I, I'm not going to manage, you know, hypertension medications in my patients. That's not what this means. Right. Um, so what does primary care mean as far as PT and, and what that means is it's more of a mindset. You can be a primary care provider or, or you can be a primary care PT if you're actually working in a primary care clinic with, with family health, I've, I've done that in a number of different institutions uh, where essentially the patient calls their primary care provider. They say, Hey, I'm coming in for back pain. And instead of them booking them with their PA, they just book them with me and I, and I take care of it. Um, you can be a primary care provider, a PT in uh, the emergency department, but you can also be a primary care PT in a sniff, you can be a primary care PT in an outpatient ortho clinic, in a neuro clinic, in a pediatric clinic. And the reason is it all comes down to mindset. It has very little to do with whether or not you're seeing the patient first. Because even if that patient has been referred to you, chances are you are the first one seeing them. Chances are uh, the primary care provider had five minutes with them and didn't have a whole lot of time to actually evaluate it. Chances are you are the first one seeing this patient for whatever is going on. Um, and with that comes a lot of responsibilities. So if you look at the history of physical therapy, we were born in 1917, um, as rehabilitation aides working for orthopedic surgeons and, and whether we like to say this or not, we were born as technicians, as a, as a profession, we were technicians. And I think it wasn't until 83 that a bachelor's degree was required for physical therapists. Uh, somewhere in that time time frame, um, it wasn't until 2003 that we moved on to a master's, and and then 2017 was actually the first year that we moved to a doctorate degree. So, um, you know, I'll hear people say things like, "Oh, the doctorate degree didn't do anything for us." You know, we're not getting more salary or or things like that. And I'm like, "Well, shoot, man! Like 2017 was the first year. Like, well, that we had, sorry, we had sorry. COVID. I, I just I just want to push back on one thing. There is is yeah. 2017 was when. Uh, 100% of graduate programs were were at the doctorate level versus the doc. The first doctorate program was introduced in 2000. Correct. Uh, I think there was actually one. I think there was one in New York back in like the 60s. I want to say that was the first one. So, (laughs) um, so yeah, I mean, it was it was a process, but as a profession, uh, 2017 was the first year that we were all at the doctorate level. So, um, so with that, you know, understanding our, our roots as technicians, we, our roots were, we were a modality the, the, the physicians would evaluate the patients. They would come up with the diagnosis. A lot of times they would come up with a treatment plan. They would refer the patients to us and they would say, we want, you know, hot pack ultrasound massage, whatever it was, you're going to see them twice a week for four weeks. And then, you know, physical therapists saluted smartly. And we saw the patient, you know, twice a week for four weeks or whatever it was, you know, we did what the physician said. And, and even today, um, you know, one of the main sources of lawsuits, if you l- look at the, the data out of HPSO, um, is physical therapists not doing the treatment that the physician says, which is, is shocking. So we, there's still this 
underlying we are a modality mindset. So, um, so ultimately, what I would say is, you know, what is primary care PT? Primary care PT is shifting that focus. And the very first focus is, does this patient belong to me? Do they belong to PT? Do they, should they get treatment? And, and, or should they be getting a referral to someone else? Should they get a referral for imaging? Should they get a referral for surgery? Do they need labs to screen them for, you know, things that could be mimics of musculoskeletal pain? Um, and then on top of that, uh, having that mindset that we are the managers of this patient's back pain, right? So if we send them for imaging, I'm going to send, I'm going to set up an appointment for them afterwards that we can review it. If I'm sending them for orthopedic surgery, uh, for a consult, I'm going to set up an appointment with them afterwards to see what the plan is. Um, kind of closing that loop. So, uh, going, changing that focus of, I'm going to stand in the gym and count to 10 every day, um, more towards, I'm going to manage this patient and I'm going to manage their care. I'm going to be in charge of that patient until I, until I, ultimately choose otherwise. I think that that is the, the mindset of a primary care physical therapist and it can happen in any setting and it can happen in direct access or it can happen in the absence of direct access. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting cause uh, you know, again, this all resonates really well with me and anyone who's followed my journey and what I do. Uh, and we were talking a little before we went online here around the fact that I've moved away from uh, despite getting my doctorate in physical therapy in 2008 and, and being in practice and participating with kind of trying to move our profession forward, uh, I got very discouraged. And I said, I'm going to go out on my own and I'm going to try to make my own thing where the person in front of me, my patient in front of me, I can do the best for them. And I just don't see most insurance-based models. I don't see most uh, traditional physical therapy models, outpatient practices to be that full spectrum picture where I think, uh, and, and I saw chiropractors doing it where they do a very good job of a marketing uh, and then becoming, you know, they were the ones who really pushed this doctorate thing. And, you know, you have Dr. Dr. Bill and Dr. Uh, you know, Matt and, 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 but they were the ones who would d dive into. And again, it got very, very gray area. And, and, and there's a reason that it was alternative because they would go into some of the energy healing and things that were just not very evidence-based, even going into, you know, nutritional stuff. Um, where again, it, it just looking at some of those things, even today where, where I, I just moved here from, uh, to Colorado from Southern California. When I was in Southern California, I was trying to do some networking and a lot of the chiropractors there, not to just pick on professions here, but, uh, trying to make, bring this in a roundabout way to a bigger point of a lot of the chiropractors, there selling some mitochondria enhancing, you know, program thing. And, and I was just like, what, like this, this is a strange like I'm, I, I, I'm great. It's great if it happens, but, but at the end of the day, I continue to, to refine my practice. And, and again, going around to this is I've come to call myself almost a health quarterback, which I think kind of ties into, to the, the, what you're describing, maybe a little bit less traditional, maybe outside the system. Uh, and, and I, I'm always trying to make sure I have at least one foot in the proper system. Um, <laughs> you know, but also saying, can I do what I can do for my patients from my own practice where I, I'm going to enjoy it. And I know I'm doing right by my patient. And I'm not restricted by a lot of things where, again, I would challenge uh, that, you know, even in Colorado is one of the few states where physical therapists can order imaging um, and specifically radiographs. And uh, it, it, I would bet 99% of the ones I've spoken to at least uh, and, and the ones that are out here in practice are not doing that and not, not either not aware of it uh, or, you know, and, and kind of when I moved here, everyone's like, oh yeah, it's a free for all here. You can do whatever you want. You can dry a needle. You can, you can, <laughs> you know, order whatever you want. Um, so again, in terms of, of challenging 
the status quo and, and hopefully evolving our profession. Um, again, I really resonated with, with the message and, and, and hearing you put it out there. And I want to just, uh, I guess, bring it back to, uh, you know, how do we get more clinicians other than maybe hopefully these conversations, getting somebody to be like, oh, I didn't even know I'm in Colorado and I can order imaging um, to, to, you know, wake up to that concept, take on more responsibility. Because again, I think as a profession, not to overgeneralize or over stereotype, but we tend to be okay with being like, I think there is that, that aid or, or technician, uh, you know, me mentality around, uh, you know, yeah, I'm okay. I, I need to play my part. And the, the surgeon sent over this protocol. And if I don't follow it to the letter, I'm going to get yelled at and I'm going to lose business or I'm going to lose, you know, my, my ability to bring home bread for my family. So I guess, you know, other than the legislation, uh, other than maybe shouting it from the rooftops as much as we can, one voice at a time, uh, <laughs> I don't see the, and this is where, again, the, I'll bring it back real quick to my frustrations with the APTA. I think their messaging falls short in a lot of ways. Um, and, and, you know, I don't, that can certainly lead us down another hour of a conversation. Um, sure. but I was even as another example, real quick, I was in a journal club with a couple of other physical therapists. They're up in Oregon, most of them. And we the first article we talked about happened to deal with nutrition. And as we were talking about it, the, I got the sense that none of them felt comfortable or had the time within their settings to talk about nutrition, which to me is, is, is just, you know, money on the table. It's, it's, it's low hanging fruit of like, how do we at least not say, Hey, maybe eat some more protein, maybe decrease your inf inflammatory foods. Like here's some real simple, even a pamphlet around that, you know, uh, to me, it's such a big part of what I do. I was kind of discouraged to hear all these guys talk about, it. and they kind of push back that they don't even know if it's within their practice act. And I went on the APTA website and, and it does vary state to state, but the APTA website has it on there. And again, unless you go searching like I did, you're not going to know that, you know, the profession is trying to make sure we as clinicians uh, push this concept. So you work with a company called uh, Redefining Health Education, which I think is, is again, necessary, awesome. So uh, I guess the question in all that is <laughs> how do we, and, and where, where, where do you see the folks, maybe if somebody's listening here or, uh, you know, what's the call to action for us as a profession to, to really move this forward other than, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to step on your toes, but, but sure. of, 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 you know, let's keep doing the same stuff. Let's let legislation is, is, is possible. Um, you know, so that, yeah, I guess that that's, that's my question for you. Yeah. So, uh, so a lot to, lot to unpack with that. Right. So, <laughs> um, uh, so one, let me, let me lead with this. Um, I, I think if you had interviewed me, um, three, four years ago, I, I'd probably have, um, very similar frustrations that you just mentioned in regards to the APTA. Um, uh, however, my, my journey over the last couple of years, um, I actually see things on the, the opposite side of this. Um, the APTA are overwhelmingly volunteers. Um, I'm, I'm an APTA member and I, I'm a, I'm the chair of the, the triad, uh, the vice chair of the triad district. I'm on the legislative action committee and, and various other things. And I volunteer my time. So, um, everybody I work with is volunteering their time. No one, no one is getting paid. Um, by the APTA that I've, that I've worked with. Um, so if there's, if there's things that we are not doing a lot of times is that we just don't have enough people volunteering to, to participate. I mean, if we had more participation, we'd be able to do, uh, a lot more. So, um, you know, I, I look at, uh, before I got to the civilian side and, and whatever else I, I, you know, I used to send in my $500 every year begrudgingly and, and, oh, I don't know where this goes. And I don't know what this does. And, um, and then I would never, I would never log on to the APTA website and I would never participate in the district meetings and I would never, you know, do any of the things that, 
uh, I would never do anything to get anything out of out of the organization. And um, you know, when I started plugging in a little bit more, uh, I realized, wow, I'm actually getting a ton out of this. I mean, we're making changes in regards to legislation. We're making changes in regards to the board rules. There, um, we're you know, there are scholarships, there's student loan interest reductions. There's all sorts of other things going on. So, um, so I know you and I are on on different ends of this, but um, but what I would say is, first of all, um, it's a it's a volunteer organization. If if people are unhappy with it, like please come, like help us, like let's change it. Like I'll, I'll, I'll throw one I'll throw one thing in there real quick again, sure. I, and I'm not trying to completely and and I wish that more people would get involved. I really do. And again, I, I we talked a little before we recorded when I was a student. Uh, all three years, I was as involved as possible. The next two years, when I was was out out of school in a in an insurance based model, uh, I, I was you know, I had the time and, and things like that to be involved. And then when I was going out on my own, that's when I really got frustrated um, and, and said, like, I feel like nothing is going to help me as an entrepreneur setting up my own business from the private practice section, which felt very, I, I don't even want to go down all these different paths. But I was even on the APTA uh, student assembly. I got, you know, I went to all, I went to all nine of the nine conferences that existed at the time as, in my three years of, of being a student. So I definitely was was bought in, and again, I really do wish that uh, you know folks would get more involved. The one thing I, I did want to interject real quick is I do pay attention to still what's going on with that, and uh, very recently I know that in terms of the the, the money and your, and there are obviously the the people who are in uh, Alexandria, Virginia, where the headquarters are. Uh, there are folks there who get paid, and and they have to decide what to do with all all the things to push our profession forward, all our our funds and monies. And I got one of the things that really stood out to me uh, was <laughs> they they decided to put an ad in Times Square, uh, which God knows how much that costs. Uh, I'm sure it's available somewhere, but and, and it was you know again traditional physical therapy, like oh let's help you get out of the wheelchair and and improve gait, which again phenomenal important thing but just no, no connection to what it is I do. And if, again, like that's where I'm like, I'm not that type of clinician. Uh, physical therapy is not what I do. I've been struggling to find, you know, long-term health or fitness, fit care, like all these different concepts. I've actually been running away from the profession because there's also so many problems. And again, we don't have to go into of, of again, just most clinicians and it drives me crazy. Uh, you know, it's, it's, doing stuff that just is not evidence-based anymore and but there's still reimbursement and again it's it's the system that we're in so i can go and again I've, if, if anyone's listened to any of my other episodes there's a lot of, of of stuff there and i'm sure you have counters to all of those things um <laughs> and, but but i mean that's that's just a little bit of my side of 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 the frustration and like uh you know i think that again it, it, it's very important uh to fight the fights and i can't blame the apta and the volunteers and again like i like i said you know we talked about i was involved in in the brooklyn staten island district and and you know god knows how many hours and meetings we had there and like you know, we would we would take a bus up to albany and try to lobby with the the politicians and again you know we talk about it, it takes eight years to, to make change uh and it wasn't necessarily that i didn't we didn't see change and i actually saw a big change when i was there as a student in 2006 we actually got direct access uh, that we were talking about and that was partly because of uh, orthopedist putting up, uh, if you, I don't know if you're familiar with this from New York and, and how some of the states got their direct access. But for us, it was uh, orthopedist putting an ad in a, in a and it was, it was a local pub health publication, a, a magazine. And it basically said, can your physical therapist, and it was, it was an, a radiograph, can your physical therapist see that there's cancer here? Um, and it was a scare tactic. And, you know, the, the, the boards and the government that said like, this is enough, like, we don't want to, you know, uh, or whether it was money or, or political influence or whatever, but that was in the, the kind of turning point that 
got New York direct access finally after fighting it for, for multiple years there. So anyway, that's a little bit of my kind of <laughs> sob story, whatever, what you yeah. want to call it. And, and well, yeah, uh, you know, I hear a lot about, uh, you know, I hear a lot about people say, oh, well, what, you know, what is the APTA accomplishing? I mean, um, there are so many different things, but let's just, let's just, I mean, since we're going down the APTA route, if we just want to speak to to dry needling alone, I think it was 2009 that the APTA added it to the professional scope of practice, meaning that, so you talked about the scope of practice that you looked up on the APTA website, but then you have to go to these various states, right? So the professional scope is what is within the scope of, of physical therapy as a profession. Then when you go to these different states and look in these different states, that's the jurisdictional scope. So um, if you have questions on that, you can you can go to the APTA website and look up scope of, scope of practice. There's a House of Delegates uh, paper on it that'll help explain it. Um, but it wasn't until 2009 that dry needling was added to the professional scope in, in physical therapy. Well, here it is 12 years later and dry needling is legal in the vast majority of states. I, I know there's still a handful that, that it's not legal, but it's legal in the vast majority of states. I remember when I presented- I, I happened to be at two of the states where it was not allowed. So I'm a little bitter yeah. about that. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I, I remember when I presented as a student at uh, APTA uh, CSM in 2007, I want to say, uh, on spinal manipulation. Uh, spinal manipulation was still very, uh, it was very controversial at the time. Should PTs be doing it? Should Should it not? We were fighting for it. And here it is. That was 2007. Here it is in 2021. And like 48 states have spinal manipulation. We passed it in North Carolina a couple of years ago. So um, to say that the APTA is not accomplishing anything is. is I, I, I didn't. Correct. For the record, I didn't say that. No, 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 that. you didn't. No, I, I'm <laughs> saying, yes, I hear this from other people, yeah. not you. Yeah. Um, I hear this from other people. So there's a lot that's being accomplished. Um, now, uh, the other thing I've heard, and you mentioned, um, you know, the person getting out of the wheelchair isn't, isn't what uh, isn't what uh, you do. Um, I actually hear it from the other side. I hear it from acute care physical therapists or, you know, sniff therapist therapists that are saying, well, I'm not dry needling and I'm not doing spinal manipulation. You know, what is the APTA mm -hmm. doing for us? So, um, so the, the one thing, and you mentioned, you know, you mentioned chiropractors earlier, you know, I, I hear a lot of orthopedic physical therapists compare physical therapy to chiropractors. And they're like, why aren't we doing more like what the chiropractors are doing? Why aren't we doing more as far as you know, building up, you know, private practice and businesses and cash-based businesses and everything else. Um, but to compare physical therapy to chiropractors, I think is a, is an unfair comparison. Um, most chiropractors aren't getting reimbursed by insurance. Now PTs can say that's good or bad, but most chiropractors aren't being reimbursed by insurance. Um, I've never seen a chiropractor working in an acute care facility. I've never seen one working in a SNF. I've never seen one working in home health. So well, can, I, can, I, can, I, can I ask you there then? I sure. mean, Again, because that's something for me that definitely resonates or, or, or sure. strikes home. Uh, and that, that and I, I, again, when I first uh, in senior year of high school, my team doctor was a chiropractor. I sprained my ankle. He cracked my back. I didn't know what was happening. I was like, this, this is awesome. Um, I want to figure this thing out. So eventually I kind of said, eh, I don't know if I, I believe in all of the things chiropractic is talking about uh, and, and switched over to orthopedic surgery and then didn't really love that. And then I switched over to physical therapy and felt that was the right fit for me to be able to spend one-on-one -on -one time with folks and really guide them sure. with this evidence-based concept. Um, and, and so <clears throat> I guess my, my pushback to what you were saying real quick is, is I understand, I, I kind of understand where you're coming from, but here, and, and I appreciate that the, the, the academic kind of argument here, hopefully that we're, we can call it is at the end of the day, 
uh, and Evidence in Motion, I did a webinar with them uh, when COVID lockdown uh, first started. They had presented a, a recent uh, survey study that, that put out there, again, the preferred provider for low back pain. And chiropractors are so far ahead. And I think that's the real complaint from folks like me is, is how, why are we not, and again, we talk about practitioner of choice and you know, all these different terms and get PT first. But, you know, I think that's where the, the, the struggle for us is when we compare to chiropractors is low back pain is the most common condition, you know, musculoskeletal condition and number one condition, I think, in the world at this point. Um, and so for, for and, and, and that specific study, I believe physical therapists were the fifth provider to be uh, acknowledged uh, behind your general practitioner, orthopedic surgeon, massage therapist, acupuncturist, chiropractor was way up there, number one. I mean, there's rap songs about, I'm back like a chiropractor. Like people just know I have back pain, I'm going to a chiropractor. Um, and, and, and from a marketing, imaging, all that standpoint, that's where some of that frustration, I think, comes from, from folks like me of, of you know, from yeah. as a profession, why are we not? Uh, yeah, and, and I think part of it is the diluted message, like you're well, saying, it's, like it's, you have all these different, it goes back to, it goes back to breadth, right? So, um, why, why does everybody know, go to a chiropractor for back pain? Well, because they're largely doing nothing else, right? right. Like, I, I don't know too many chiropractors that are treating primarily knees. I don't know too many chiropractors that are treating primarily shoulders. I don't know too many chiropractors that are, you know, teaching a patient to walk again. You know, I'm, I'm not, I, you know, um, I don't know too many chiropractors working in sniff that that back pain is almost exclusively what chiropractors do that. Right. So, um, so this comes down to, this comes down to a, a breadth versus a, a depth issue, right? So, um, chiropractors, uh, much like ATs, right. Athletic trainers, um, their, their breadth as a profession is, is very, very narrow, right? For the most part, chiropractors are treating spines. Now that doesn't mean that they can't treat other things and, and some do, but for the most part, chiropractors are treating spines. Um, for the most part, ATs are on the field. Um, but there's not a lot of breadth on that. You don't see ATs working in a sniff. You don't see ATs working in a hospital. You don't see a lot of chiropractors working on ankles. So, um, but when you look at the most powerful professions out there in medicine, I mean, it's, it's hard to argue that physicians and nurses aren't the two most powerful professions as far as medicine is, is I mean, I guess we, how you define powerful if, if we're, <laughs> I mean, as far as, as far as lobbyists, as far as, okay. uh, as far as scope of practice, as far as, uh, membership as far, I mean, um, I mean, shoot, I, I would, I would say it's hard to argue that chiropractors merit match up to the, I mean, does it, does the American chiropractic association, do you think that that is on equal footing with the American medical association? No, no. Uh, from yeah. what I've I've seen, for sure, the, Amer the the American Medical Association is certainly the most powerful organization uh, yeah. in in that regard. Therefore, yeah, sure, I can yeah. see the, the so, connection so to the profession. Yeah. So when you look at nurses and you look at at physicians, they have incredible breadth, right? Nurses can work in outpatient clinics. Nurses can work in inpatient clinics. Nurses can work in case management. You know, physicians work in all sorts of different clinics. There's a, there's a ton of breadth in those professions. And because of that, they have a lot of room to grow. If they're, if, if physical therapists became only outpatient ortho, similar to what chiropractors are primarily doing, um, sure. Could we focus a lot more on cash-based services and private practice and, and all those other things? Sure. But we're so much bigger than that. You know, and when you look at a, a cohort of, uh, physical therapy students, 
there's a good portion of those that have no interest in even going into outpatient ortho. So to tell them that they're mandatorily going to take these six courses on business when they're never going to open up their own skilled nursing facility, the barrier to entry on opening a skilled nursing facility is exceptionally high. They would need millions and millions of dollars. Um, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's so to compare us to chiropractors to compare us to ATs. Um, frankly, I would be, I would be willing to bet that, uh, uh, they would be willing to flip with us, uh, on, on many things. ATs are, ATs aren't even recognized by Medicare. They don't get reimbursed by CPT codes. That's, that's what they're fighting for right now. ATs in many States aren't licensed. It's still a certification. That's what they're fighting for. Now, physical therapists have, have well exceeded that. Now there, there are some things you know, with chiropractors, a physical therapist can probably do better, right? So chiropractors, um, you know, can do things like ordering imaging. Um, there's no question that they have direct access. Um, you know, there, there are some, uh, there are some benefits from chiropractors. Like for instance, they have their own spinal manipulation codes and, and we don't have those, um, which are service codes. That would be a great addition to our, uh, to the things that we can add as far as procedural CVT codes. Um, but overall, as a profession, I, I think we're doing I think we're doing exceptionally well, and I think that I think the comparison to to those limited scope professions is is not a fair comparison to, to either profession. Sure, sure, your point is well taken. Along, uh, I'm, I'm going to shift it over to research because I know sure. you do a lot, and I'd be interested if, if this comes back to that part too. But uh, again. You've had at least 28 publications uh, that's been debated in, in, <laughs> in how many actual publications you've had, but 28 seems to be the, the LinkedIn number there that we're going to go with. Um, and I heard you again mention, and I really wanted to highlight this aspect, uh, the fact that case studies are considered by our academic standards one of the lowest forms of evidence, as, as the term is. But I'd love to hear you talk about the the usefulness. And, and again, I'm a big fan of this concept because, again, I work one-on-one -on -one with folks and uh, I, I see a lot of flaws in research. And I'm happy to, to either hear your side of it or, or go you know into, into that a little bit more. But uh, case studies as maybe a little bit more powerful component of evidence-based practice, I'd uh, love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I, I think, uh, you know, we all learn in school that, you know, the, the top of the pyramid is the, you know, the meta-analyses. And then right below that is systematic reviews. And then, you know, randomized control trials below that. And, then, you know, way down there at the bottom is case studies. And that's right there alongside, you know, expert opinion. And um, uh, interestingly, not every profession looks at evidence that way. So I'm, I'm actually working on my PhD now in business. And um, there is no hierarchy that says that case studies are lower. They actually view case studies as, as being very strong. So, um, so it's fascinating to see the differences in, in regards to research and, and how things are, are viewed. Um, so I, I think some of the, the, the concepts behind the hierarchy make sense, right? So if I'm looking at rehabilitation of a patient with an ACL tear, um, a case study, eh, probably not the best research for that, right? There's, you know, there are tons and tons of patients with ACL, uh, rehabilitation going on. There's lots of subjects. You can do a randomized control trial, see what's what's shaking out. Um, but frankly, I, as a clinician, I found that I wasn't really going to the research for things that are super common because I already know how to treat things that are going to get, you know, 80% of the patients better. You know, I was going to the research when, wow, this is a really unusual case. I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to treat this. This is a really unusual presentation. Oh, wow. 
you know, the research says that 80% of patients get better with whatever dry needling of this condition. Okay. Well, I already did that and they didn't get better. Now what? Right. So, um, so there's this, this focus on evidence-based medicine as being the only thing. And if we, if we deviate from that at all, we're bad clinicians. And what we have to remember is, you know, all evidence-based medicine says is, um, you know, if, if 80% of patients get better with manual therapy and 70% get better with dry needling, I'm making up these numbers, um, that the evidence says that, that manual therapy is better and we should go with manual therapy and not dry needling. And, and all that's statistically great. Statistically so, significantly better. Yeah, statistically significantly better. That's great. Okay, so 80% get better with manual therapy. That's great. <laughs> well, what am I going to do with those other 20%, right? So, you know, those other 20% that don't get better, what do I tell them? Well, I, I use the best evidence-based approach. You're out of luck. Like, just deal with it. Um, and that's when we have to be able to understand that, hey, look, every single patient is a case study. Every single patient is an N of one. I've never treated a randomized control trial. I don't have a systematic review on my 130 schedule. Every single patient is an N of one. And you know what? What's going to get 80% of patients better might not get that 1% of patient better. That might not get that N of one better. So um, so I'll hear people say, oh, well, Graston isn't evidence-based. Well, you know what? When I have that patient that doesn't get better with whatever is evidence-based, I am super glad that that Graston therapist is out there that can do something different that isn't them getting opioids or isn't it getting them getting cut. So before we all get into our corners and say, oh, McKenzie is best or manual therapy is best or dry needling or, you know, now there's this new cohort of, you know, active only therapy is the only way to go and everything else is garbage. I think we need to appreciate that having diversity within our profession as far as a treatment approach makes us stronger. It makes us better. And when I get to a patient where, shoot, I've, I've tried all the things I've tried and, and, and I'm striking out what's next. You know, you look at the imaging, shoot, there's nothing surgical here. Well, what are my options? You know, I can send you for a rhizotomy. I can send you for surgery. I can send you for opioids or, you know what, maybe there's somebody down the hall that has a little bit of a different approach. It might not be the one that gets the majority of patients better, but maybe, maybe this will work for, for you. And, and let's try that. And, and I think if we, you know, kind of took down our, our, you know, there, there's a lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, bombs being tossed in, in these, in these various courts about, you know, well, this, this approach is better. That approach is better. And, and I think we need to dial that down a little bit and embrace the fact that there are different approaches that are going to work different for different patients and, and, uh, and for different reasons. So, um, so that kind of gets back to the case studies, right? So, so what case studies are interesting for, and, and the further I'm going as a clinician, uh, the more I'm realizing that I get the most out of case studies is that they're, they're written typically about an unusual, an unusual diagnosis or an unusual treatment approach to a common diagnosis. Um, and those are the ones that have the most value in those patients that you haven't gotten them better. Um, and as a clinician, um, we are uniquely positioned to actually publish some of this because we're actually seeing the patients. I know now that I'm a, an academic, I don't see patients anymore, so I can't publish case studies. So if you're a clinician out there and you want to contribute to the research, nothing wrong with, with doing a case study. It's, it's going to be valuable. It's going to help. It's going to help clinicians. Um, you know, assuming it is, you know, one of those more, you know, if you're doing traditional rehabilitation of an ACL, maybe not so much, but um, is that, does that get to your, get to your question? Yeah. And, and that takes us to one of the things we talked about before also, I guess, where would someone start 
in that situation where the, you know, do, do, it's hard. Cause again, if you're in a busy clinic, you get whatever uh, you, you mentioned your kind of burnout story, I think of having 25 to 30 patients a day. Uh, but you're busy doing notes. You're busy trying to get, do the best you can for every single patient. Again, maybe if you're in a pretty good practice, maybe yeah. you're down to 15 patients a day. Um, so the, the question then becomes if you're a clinician in those situations, um, obviously you have, you should be taking objective data. Uh, you're taking your soap notes, um, yeah. all that good stuff. But, but yeah, at, at what point can you say, well, this is an interesting case. Again, some, some clinics that are a little busier. I know I, uh, my, when I first graduated, I was in a very busy New York city, Manhattan based practice where again, I, I was working with the owner. I was doing a, a pseudo fellowship residency, whatever you want to call it. And between the two of us, we'd see 30 people. I was responsible for doing most of that. Um, sure. you, you know, especially as I got a little more, uh, uh, evolved, so to speak. And, and so again, within that context, uh, maybe you're in that setting where you can have that conversation of, Hey, I wanted to talk about, you know, this patient and, and, uh, she was pretty interesting. She presented this way and you have that conversation. So how do you take that and then go to, I'm, I want to publish this. Like, you know, yeah. I'm just going to go out of my way and, and contact, you know, uh, J O S P T or. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let me, so let me walk uh, yeah, through that. So, uh, so you mentioned burnout. So, um, one of the things I found was, um, you know, similar to, to many of your listeners out there, you know, you start grinding patients every day. Um, and after a while it, it ends up being groundhog day, right? I mean, I'm going to go in, I'm going to grind patients and I'm going to go in and grind patients can go in and grind patients. And, and that can lead to, you know, a little bit of burnout. And, and what I found was, you know, you'd get these cases and you don't know what to do with them. So now you're digging in the research, you're trying to figure out, you know, you're spending your lunch hour to, to dig in the research. Um, you know, you're writing up the case, you're writing up the soap note. Um, and reality you're already doing all the work. That is largely a case study. You're just doing it in soap note format. If you took that soap note and put it in a paragraph format, there it is. There's your publication. So, um, so it's not a lot of additional work. Um, and frankly, I found that it reduced my burnout because now it was like, Oh, wow, that was fun. You know, like I, I learned a lot about this condition and now, um, you know, this rare condition inexplicably, whether I, I sought out to be or not, I'm probably one of the, the leading experts in this rare condition, just because I had to to dig in the research and figure out what was going on with my patients. So um, then you kind of give back and, and everything else. But, uh, you know, uh, the, the, when I, when I chat with clinicians and, and I was, I was wrong, I was, I, I probably overreached as a clinician when I very first thought about research, you know, I, I learned that, Oh, well, RCTs are all that matters. So I would come up with these research ideas and I want it to be, you know, this, this very complex uh, RCT. And then I would talk to a researcher and I'd, you know, I'd ask them, you know, can we do this? And, and, and the, the ask was huge, you know, essentially we'd have to get grant funding, which is a huge step. And then you have to, you know, for grant funding, you need a and, and, and all these other steps. <laughs> um, so, so I, I think the, the way that clinicians can really uh, start building up uh, and contributing to the research if they, if they want to, is just do things like case studies. You know, you can do something as simple as I had an unusual case and I'm going to present it as a poster at a conference. Um, it's posters are usually the abstracts are usually 250 words. You slap a poster together. You have to go for continuing education anyway. So why not do it there? And while you're there, instead of just, instead of just absorbing the information, maybe you can also give back. And, and the, the fascinating thing with that, you know, I, I started doing uh, poster presentations at AOMT under, you know, Mike Ross and some other authors. Um, you know, I'd stand by the poster and people would come around and they'd ask me questions and I would learn, you know, from these, incredible clinicians, they'd ask me these questions. And I'm like, Oh God, I never thought of that, you know? And then they would give me their thoughts and I would learn and I would grow. Um, and I actually found that 
presenting at conferences, I was learning more from presenting than I was from, from taking it in. Cause I would get this Attending. feedback and, Oh, wow. I didn't yeah. think of that. And I didn't, I, you know, I would need to grow. Um, and then from there, it's usually, you know, a step up just to get it into, to ink, you know, um, you know, JOSPT musculoskeletal imaging feature is 250 words. That's one page typed double spaced. That's all it is. Um, you know, they have a, uh, JOSPT cases has, um, their full features for cases is 1500 words. So what does that end up being six page double spaced? I mean, that's, that's almost nothing. So, um, uh, so you take those soap notes, you flip it into a paragraph form. The other thing I would say is, you know, as, as clinicians, if they want to get involved in research, one, um, latch on to a, a senior researcher. So if, if a clinician is out there and they want to get involved in, in case studies, please contact me. I'm, I'm happy to help guide you. I have templates that to help guide you in that, in that case. Um, if you're close to a, uh, a university, you can kind of reach out to them and just say, Hey, look, I work in such and such clinic. I want to get involved. A lot of times there's, there are researchers that have the research study set up. They have the IRB set up, maybe grant funding. And all they're looking for is a, is a site to kind of plug into. And that's where clinicians can be, Hey, look, this is the site, you know, we can kind of be the, the clinical end of this. Um, and they don't have to worry about the IRB and the grant funding and, and, and necessarily writing the manuscript. They can be the, the treatment end of whatever research study that's, that's going into it. So there's a, there's a lot of ways for clinicians to get plugged in. Um, and they can do it as kind of a, a stepwise model. They can go as, as small or as big as they want to go. But if you, if you start small, you can kind of grow from there. I mean, uh, I flipped over to academia three years ago. I still consider myself to be a clinician at heart, even though, um, I'm an academic, I guess now, but, um, you know, here I am all these years later, I've still have never done an RCT. I have 28 publications, I guess, and they're almost exclusively cases. Um, I've done a couple of observational studies. Uh, I've done a couple of retrospective studies, um, but I haven't done any prospective RCTs and, and that's okay. I mean, I'm, I'm still contributing. I'm, I'm not getting cited a ton, but that's probably okay. I, I think I'm still giving back to the profession and, and, um, you know, these, these baby steps, um, as a clinician are, are really appreciated. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that perspective. Um, we are, we are coming up on a little bit of time and I wanted to just maybe the most controversial question I'm going to ask you, throw it at you, uh, in research. One of my biggest, if, if people haven't already got this concept that I'm a big skeptic, maybe might be my Brooklyn growing, uh, upbringing. Um, <laughs> so the, the, when we talk about research, and you kind of went into the the a little bit of the difficulty of getting to publish research RCTs again. You've published twenty eight studies uh, in terms of we, we touched on power. Also, I think there's a few uh, new things that I've seen over the last few years of you know assessing the power of a of a of an article that comes out, whether it's you know how often it gets shared, what mm -hmm. its impact is on social media as well. You know all these different measures of of power of an article. Um, so actually this morning I was in a, a men's group where we were talking about, they were interested in BFR and these are guys that are not in the healthcare space, uh, but blood flow restriction training is one of those things that here's, here's my quick take on it. And, and again, I know I'm, it might be just an over cynical, over skeptical view of it, but at the end of the day, a lot of things like BFR, you have companies that come out, they sell BFR, uh, these cuffs, blood flow restriction. They obviously are interested in showing that it is a powerful effect. Um, and it is just as good. An article I just saw yesterday on, on Twitter was uh, BFR just as effective as deadlifting in terms of, you know, creating hypertrophy. And, and I'm, I'm a little skeptical of uh, headlines like that. And, and, you know, people on there talking and, and getting very excited about the, the headline. So I guess the, the bringing it back is how do we 
elevate the profession, elevate the research, go through some of these concepts. Again, if I'm talking to a group of, you know, seven other men um, who are interested in BFR and I'm over here saying like, yeah, I wouldn't trust anything they say. Um, and, and again, that's a little bit of an over-exaggeration, but mm. the reality of it is research is expensive. Uh, the companies that are going to be funding research about BFR are probably BFR companies who are selling cuffs. Um, so they, and if, if they do put money and time and research into, into this, uh, and they, it comes out that nothing, there's no effect or it shows a negative effect or something like that. Uh, they're probably not just going to say, okay, we're going to scrap this. We're not going to, you know, put this out there cause it's going to hurt our bottom line. So all that said, <laughs> uh, obviously again, just like the APTA concept, I'm not saying completely abandon it. Nobody should be involved. However, uh, I guess how, uh, you know, give me that, you, you, you be the optimist to my, uh, you know, be the yin to my yang, be the optimist wow. to my pessimist if you can. And, and tell me again, how do we, um, I guess, push through or, or for those of us who kind of see how the sausage is made, uh, how do, how do we get past that, I guess, or, or, or communicate, convey that to some extent to, to the general public in our, with our voice. Yeah, I, I think, uh, 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 we we might both be yins on this one. Uh, there might we're, we might not have any yangs. So um, no, I, oh I, you know I, you know when it when it comes to um, when it comes to the therapeutic research, um, you'll have just as many studies that say something works as something that doesn't work. So um, you know there's a ton of RCTs out there that shows that you know manual therapy is effective, and and now you know now they're trying to say the manual therapy isn't effective and. You know, and then there was lasers and then lasers went away and ultrasound was it and then it went away. And then, you know, now it's active only therapy and that'll that'll go away with time. And, and you know, we're, we're there's all of this research in, in therapeutics. And, and I think, frankly, I think in the grand scheme of life, it, it it's it's a lot of it is a waste of time. I, I think that um, uh, we're, we're really splitting hairs, you know, you know, what's better, a deadlift or a lunge? You know, OK, well, I mean, when it comes to musculoskeletal medicine we're probably splitting hairs a little bit with this stuff. And that, that's why we get these equivocal results. That's why we get things that, you know, oh, well, this is the best thing. And now, and now it's the worst thing. And, and the reason is because we're, we're looking at such fine differences between these different approaches um, that any switch in any one direction can, can flip it. I think, uh, I think as physical therapists, we need to, again, it, this goes back to that primary care physical therapy model that we talked about before. We need to get out of that modality mindset. And, and if you look at uh, where we are as physical therapists, I would say that the vast majority of physical therapists are probably good at interventions, right? At some interventions, whatever that intervention is, you know, whether that be exercise, whether that be manual therapy or grass thinner, whatever intervention, intervention approach that a physical therapist is, is pursuing, chances are they're probably pretty good at it. And, and sure, could they get better? Could they get, you know, instead of being, you know, 80% good at it, could they get 83% good at it? Sure. Um, but at a certain point, we're going to plateau as far as how good we can really be at any one particular intervention. And, and I think one of the, the things that we can really get a whole lot better on uh, that as a profession, we are not as good as we need to be are things like screening. I think we should get better on screening. I think we should get better at diagnosis. I think we should get better at patient management. Um, you know, I'll, I'll hear physical therapists say, uh, I had one I talked to the other day and and I was talking to them about imaging and, and they said, you know, well, why do we need imaging? I'm, I, I've been a physical therapist for 30 years and I've, I've never needed an image in my life. And I said, huh, what do you, what do you do when a patient doesn't get better? Oh, well, I just send them back to the PCP. And I'm like, 
what do you think they're doing with them? Like they're, they're getting the image, right. you know, like, so, so, so all they were saying is, is I'm not taking any ownership of this patient. I'm just tapping out and I'm giving them the PCP and then I'm, I'm hands off and I don't want that responsibility. And I, and I think as physical therapists, we can grow a great amount in regards to patient management. I think we can grow a great regards amount of, of screening, uh, diagnosis. Um, though that's the research that I focus on and I stopped reading anything on intervention. I think this intervention stuff, you're going to have, you know, one camp is going to say McKenzie is great. And then another camp is going to say McKenzie's terrible. And one camp is going to say blood flow restrictions. Great. And another camp's going to say it's terrible. And I, I think it's all noise. So I think we're both yins. There. Yeah. <laughs> I, I appreciate your candor on that. And yeah, again, at the end of the day, for me, the, the, the 10,000 foot view, so to speak is, Again, like a lot of these studies are done on college students, right? You know, if we want to really overgeneralize and it's like, how does that apply to a 45 year old who's, uh, you know, probably not the exact matchup for, uh, you know, the, the, and that's where the case study thing is really interesting uh, oh, yeah. to, to, and I wanted to really highlight the fact that again, by the sure academically in a textbook, we can say case studies are the lowest form of evidence. Um, but yeah, the usefulness for someone like you or me in, in a clinic is, might be super duper high. So, um, I, I appreciate that kind of, uh, retro fitting or, or change of perspective if, if we want to say that. Um, anyway, uh, I appreciate that. Uh, and, and again, we could talk about a lot of these for a lot more. Uh, but again, I want to be respectful of everyone's time and including the listener and yours. Uh, so as we wrap up, tell everyone where they can find you, Dr. Lance Mabry. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm active primarily on LinkedIn. I, I like LinkedIn because it's uh, it's not political or things like that, like you get in Facebook and Twitter. So I, I try to avoid the that end of it. So uh, LinkedIn's nice because it's just it's just physical therapy, and that's it. Which is which is or <laughs> you know depending on your network. So right. Um, right. you can find me there uh, if you want to contact me. I'm at uh, lmabry at highpoint.edu as far as uh, email. Um, uh, and then if you're interested in any of my, uh, classes, feel free to look me up on redefine health education. Phenomenal. Thank you so much for your time. We're going to sign off on all that. And again, guys, if you, uh, made it this far, I hope you got at least 1% better, uh, as the saying goes. And, uh, thank you again, Dr. Lance Mabry. Hope you have an awesome